The scripture reading this morning is uh, Revelation 1 to 3. And I would invite everybody to, uh, after the service or whenever, that they read the rest of this uh, chapter. Revelation 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, which must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who testifies everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Amen. Good evening and welcome to everybody again here in Phoenix, Arizona and wherever you're joining us by satellite television across North America and around the world. And again, how is everybody feeling this evening? Have you had a good day? Everybody in Phoenix has had a good day and I hope they had a great one where you are too. You know something? Every day is a good day when you know you have the Bible to lean on and that you can know the one true living God as your friend. Well, tonight's subject will be the man of Revelation and tonight I'm going to lay some more foundation stones. Uh, This will be a very elementary subject in this Unless we have these foundation stones, we cannot really understand the book of Revelation. This is probably one of the most important subjects I could present to any group anywhere on the face of the earth. And so before we begin tonight, I'd like to ask that everybody simply bow their heads with me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, tonight it's with great joy that we anticipate hearing your voice. We believe as we look at the Bible that this is a book of hope that this is a book that points us to a great future, that this is a book that shows us your love for us and shows us how deeply you care. So, gracious Father, tonight as we open the pages of the Bible, I ask that you'd speak specifically to our hearts, that we would hear your voice and that we would come away changed. Lord, bless our study, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When you open a Bible to the very beginning of the book of Revelation, you'll notice in many translations of the scriptures that the book has been given a very specific title. You'll find something at the top of the book of Revelation in most translations of the scripture. You'll find a title that runs something like this. It'll call it the Revelation of St. John the Divine. Now, That's a pretty good title for this book. Originally, this book did not have a title like that. It was added by translators some years later. And I think the revelation of St. John the Divine is a pretty good title because it really was the Apostle John who penned these words in the first place. See, the Roman Empire tried to get rid of the Apostle John. History tells us, and we're relatively certain of it, but not 100% sure of it, that the emperor of Rome tried to kill John by boiling him alive in a pot of oil. 
Now that would be a very painful way to go. But much to the emperor's disgust, they put John in the oil, nothing happened. John sat there and he was quite happy and comfortable and it just didn't work. God preserved his life. So they took him out of the oil and they said, what are we going to do with this guy who we can't boil to death or deep fry in a vat full of oil? What are we going to do with this guy? So they shipped him off to a little rocky island out in the Aegean Sea, off the coast of Asia Minor, the island of Patmos. Said if we banish him there, maybe Christianity will die off. John was the last of the apostles. The rest of them had died unnatural deaths, had been executed for sharing their faith in Jesus Christ. John was left. So John, as he uh, heard the voice of God on the Isle of Patmos, was shown things. He did write this book. The Revelation of St. John the Divine is not a bad title, not a bad one, but I do like the title that God gave it better. And you can find the title that God gives the book in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, where the Bible says this, Revelation 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of who? Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. This book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, is not about John. And it's not primarily about dragons or demons or the Antichrist. This book is about Jesus Christ. He is the central character of the book of Revelation. Nowhere does this become more clear, uh, clear and plain than in the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. Now, chapters 4 and 5 of the Revelation are extraordinary chapters of this book. At the beginning of chapter 4, John hears a voice that says, Come up hither. And he's escorted in vision into the very throne room of God. Absolutely amazing. He finds himself standing in heaven. And throughout chapter 4, an amazing vision begins to unfold in the book of Revelation. Then we come down to chapter 5, which will form the foundation for what I want to share with you tonight. Let's take a look as John in vision now is in the throne room of God himself in Revelation chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. John writes these words. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book. What was in his hand? It was a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now, this book was probably more like a scroll. That's how books were in those days. And so you could open a scroll, you could have writing on the front and on the back and then roll it up. And most people then would seal that scroll. He sees this kind of a book, a scroll in the hand of him that sits on the throne. Very interesting. You'll want to tuck it behind one ear for the subjects we're going to look at this weekend. Books are a pretty common feature in the courts of heaven. It's God trying to tell us he really does keep records. He notices everything that happens. There are books in heaven. This book is in the hand of him who sits on the throne. It continues in verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? There is a question in the courts of heaven about worthiness. Who is worthy? Verse 3, no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. How many were worthy? Absolutely nobody. And I wept much, John says, because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. So John begins to weep. Nobody is worthy to open this book. Nobody is worthy to see what's written inside. It continues... And one of the elders said unto me, Weep 
not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Don't cry, says the angel. Don't weep. Don't lose hope because the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open that book. Folks, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who is it? It's Jesus Christ, one of his titles. John then thinks, wow, I'm going to see a lion. But he turns and he sees something completely different. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. John hears about a lion, but he turns and he sees a lamb. And not just any lamb, he sees this lamb, a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. Now, incredible scene. Here are some questions that I have for you tonight as we begin to explore the subject of the man of Revelation. First question, why does John weep in the courts of heaven? Why is he crying? And second of all, why is that lamb worthy? What has that lamb done to have him depicted as being slain? Why is that lamb worthy to take the book when nobody else is? The whole issue makes me think of a woman I know of. Her name was Linda. And Linda had sent in the mail to the government of Nebraska for a copy of her birth certificate. Linda had been expecting it to come so that she could apply for a passport. But when it came and she opened the envelope, the bottom nearly dropped right out of her world. She pulled out that birth certificate, and across the top of it, it said, Adoptive Birth Certificate. Wow, she said. Somebody must have made a mistake because I know for a fact I'm not adopted. That's the kind of detail I would know by the time I'm 42 years old with four kids of my own. Somebody filed the wrong paperwork, put it in the wrong place. Somebody's made a big mistake. Look at that. My birth certificate's wrong. But she knows something. There was just enough nagging doubt in the back of her mind that she had this urge to pick up the phone and call somebody. Now, she couldn't call her mom and dad because her mom and dad were already deceased. So she picked up the phone and she called her uncle. Uncle, she said, can you imagine this? I just got a copy of my birth certificate in the mail and across the top it says that it is an adoptive birth certificate. What do you think of that? There was awkward silence on the other end of the phone. And Linda smelled a rat. Linda said, Uncle, tell me something. Is there more here than meets the eye? There was a sigh. Her uncle said, Well, Linda, actually, yeah. Your mom and dad made me promise that I would never tell you this. But now that you found out and they're gone anyway, you may as well know it's true. You were adopted. Well, Linda hung up the phone. She thought about it for a moment and she wasn't pleased with the fact that she'd been lied to all her life. So she picked up the phone again. She called her sister Joan. Joan, she said. What's the matter, Linda? You don't sound well. I'm not well at all. I want to know something. Am I your real sister? Yes or no? I mean your natural sister. I know we're sisters. We had the same. But am I your natural sister? Again, more awkward silence. Nobody said anything on the other end of the phone. Quiet. Linda persisted. Listen, Joan, I have a right to know this kind of thing. Tell me the truth. Well, Linda, it's true. 
It's absolutely true. I, I was not supposed to tell you, but now you've discovered it. Mom and Dad are gone anyway. You may as well know the truth. It's true. You were adopted. Linda was devastated. And folks, she wasn't devastated because of the fact that she'd been adopted. That, that didn't bother her. What bothered her is that she'd been lied to all her life, that nobody had been honest enough to tell her the truth about where she came from or how she fit into the world. And she went into shock and depression. She went into the bedroom, locked herself up for a number of days, didn't want to eat, didn't want to talk to anybody. And finally, her husband came into the bedroom, sat on the bed next to her, put his arm around her and said, Linda, honey... I know this has got to be hard for you. But why don't you try to find your real parents? That might make you feel better. Mike, she said, listen, this isn't a fairy tale. Not every story has a happy ending. My mom didn't want me once. Why would she want me now? I know, I know, said Mike. I know this is painful. But listen, you couldn't possibly feel any worse than you do now. And besides that, we've got these four beautiful children. What if there's medical information that we would really benefit from, from your side of the family? You ought to find them. In her heart, Linda knew it was the right thing to do. The only problem is, where do you start hunting when you haven't got a clue about yourself? All she knew from her birth certificate was that she'd been born in Omaha, Nebraska. That's all that she knew. But then her older sister Joan remembered one important detail, her biological parents' first names. So she took out an ad in the Omaha paper that read like this. My name is Linda, born to a genie in Warren in Omaha on July 8, 1950, and given up for adoption. My adoptive parents are deceased. I do not wish to cause any problems, but I'm seeking available information or possible reunion. Who am I? That's a good question. And Linda's not the only one who's ever been forced to ask a question like that. Lots of people have been forced to ask it. Not because they've discovered they've been adopted, but because as they go through life, they start to sense they haven't seen the big picture. They don't know everything there is to know, and they're not exactly sure how they fit in. Lots of people ask the question, who am I? And sooner or later, wherever you are watching tonight, you will be forced to ask that question too. It comes to everybody. Who am I? Where do I belong? Happened to people over the centuries. One of the most famous cases it happened to is a man mentioned in the gospel according to Luke. You know him as the thief on the cross. It says in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32, and there were also two others. Malfactors, that's from an old Latin word, it means evildoers, led with him, that's Jesus, to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malfactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Two thieves crucified with Jesus. One of them becomes very famous, and you know him as the thief on the cross. But that's all you know. We really don't know that much about this man. See, there's just no information about him. Where was he born? It doesn't tell us. What village did he grow up in? Doesn't tell us. What school did he go to? Doesn't tell us that either. We don't know anything about him. Now, ancient legends made up stories about this man because people used to be bothered that they didn't know anything. So they made up a name for him and they made up stories saying that he was a friend of Jesus when they were both boys, but it's all a bunch of nonsense. We really don't know anything about this man. All we know is what the Bible actually says about him. And the Bible says very little. Matthew says he was a thief. Mark says he was a transgressor. That's somebody who breaks the law. Uh, Luke says that he's a malefactor, an evildoer. And that's all we know about him. He's a thief, he's a transgressor, and he's an evildoer. 
What school, what town, who were his parents, we don't know anything. At the end of his life, there are just three words to sum him up. A thief, a transgressor, and an evildoer. Three words for a whole lifetime. Now that makes me pause for thought once in a while because I sometimes wonder which three words are they going to choose to sum up my life when I'm gone? Which three words are they going to choose to sum up your whole lifetime when it finally comes time to cross the finish line? That moment's coming for everybody. What three words? That's all you get in the end, you see. You only get a few words in the end. I've taken a look. I go through the graveyard, read the headstones. You only get a few words. Open the paper sometime. They don't sum up your lifetime with a whole page. You get a little column that's called an obituary. You only get a f everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, every decision you've ever made, all boiled down in the end to just a handful of words. That's it. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't say a lot in a few words. You can say an awful lot. In a I saw a headstone a while ago. The headstone read like this. Beneath this stone, my wife does lie. Now she's at rest. And so am I. Just a few words. You can say an awful lot, can't you? An awful lot. A thief, a transgressor, and an evildoer. That's all you get in the end. If somebody wanders through the graveyard, wonders who you were, it's just those words there. And chances tonight are, folks, that you will never read your own headstone. You will never read your own obituary. You will never see the words people use to remember you by. But believe me, you have already begun to write them day by day, moment by moment. The decisions you make now will determine how you are remembered for all eternity, both here on earth and and in the courts of heaven, it makes a difference what you do now. Only a few words. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say this man was a thief, he was a transgressor, and he was an evildoer. Was he a good dad to his kids? We don't know. Was he a good provider before he turned to a life of crime? It doesn't tell us that much because that's not what his life was about. In the end, he's a criminal. He was the worst thing the rulers of Israel could find to make Jesus' crucifixion seem that much more embarrassing. A worthless man. He didn't have much to show at the end of the road. Now ask yourself a question. If you, like John, suddenly found yourself escorted into the courts of heaven and you were standing in front of the throne of God, would you have cause to weep? Would you have something... What would go through your mind if you were suddenly escorted into to the very throne room of God and you looked over your life? How would you feel standing there in the presence of God? The Bible says we have a serious problem as human beings. It's a very serious problem. It's found in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. It's death. It's death. Now, why is the wages of sin death? That seems a little bit harsh, doesn't it? Okay, you know, I've done some wrong things, somebody says, but it's really not all that bad. There's that time I stole a candy bar as a kid, but the death penalty seems awfully harsh for that. Why does the Bible say the wages of sin is death? Why? Why does it say that? It's very simple. The Bible explains this in the book of Isaiah, chapter 59 and verse 2. Sin drives a serious wedge between us and God. It says in Isaiah 59, verse 2, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Sin drives a wedge between a human being and their heavenly father, the one true creator God. And that's a serious problem. Why, why doesn't God allow sin? 
Why doesn't he allow it in his presence? Well, because the Bible says he's perfectly loving, he's perfectly just, he's perfectly true. And he knows what kind of suffering sin causes. As you and I look at the world we live in, we know what kind of suffering sin causes. God's not going to allow that in his presence for all eternity because he's a God of love. He's not going to let people suffer without end. That's not in his nature. He can't allow sin in the kingdom of heaven. So when we choose sin, we literally step away from God and drive a wedge between us and Him because we've turned our backs on God. And that's a problem because the Bible says not only is God your creator, in Colossians chapter 1 it says He sustains your life. He holds it all together here on planet Earth. He actually gives you every breath you breathe, every heartbeat you have is a gift from your creator God. He's the source of all life. But if you deliberately cut yourself off from the source of life, you've got a problem. What happens if you cut yourself off from the source of life? You die. You die. It's a serious problem. Well, somebody says, I'm not dead yet. No, maybe not. But you're a little bit like an electric fan. If an electric fan is spinning at a high speed and you unplug it, those blades are going to turn for a little while, but eventually they stop. Separate it. That's what's happening to our world. That's why we saw everything that we saw in Matthew chapter 24. That's why the world is falling apart. It's cut itself off from the creator and the sustainer of life. This is serious. And this problem applies to everybody who's hearing my voice tonight. 1 John 1 verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. See, in the book of Revelation, it talks about Babylon again and again and again. And it says that the inhabitants of spiritual Babylon, which we looked at on Sunday night, they are drunk. Let me ask you, how strong is your power of perception when you're drunk? See, don't, don't answer out loud. I don't want anybody to know that you know what it's like. <laughs> but listen, how strong are your powers of perception when you've been drinking? If the Bible says if we say we have no sin, we're deceived. We're deceiving ourselves. Somebody's convinced us we're not all that bad. But the problem is serious according to the Bible. It takes it much more seriously than we do. Let's be honest about it tonight. Let's do a little self-inventory. Folks, let me ask you, as you're watching wherever you are, have you ever told a lie? I mean a little bitty one. A little bitty one. Even when you're a kid, my kids, I don't know where they learned it from. They have a story for everything. Have you ever told a lie? You know what? The Bible says that makes you a liar. Hmm. You ever stolen something? No, I've never stolen anything. Oh, really? Did you represent yourself accurately on every tax return? If you've ever stolen, what does that make you? Makes you a thief. See, the problem is universal. The Bible says all have done it. If you say you haven't, you're deceived. The Bible says in Romans 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? All, all have sinned. So who faces the problem? Everybody. And so who's worthy to open the scroll in heaven? Nobody. Somebody says, okay, okay, I've sinned, but I'm certainly not as bad as the guy who's sitting next to me tonight. I'm doing pretty good compared to him. He's a really, if you knew him, you'd see that I'm pretty good. Uh, it says all have fallen short of the goal. Let me illustrate this for you. My friend, uh, my friend Ed is here somewhere. Ed, where are you? I want Fred, Ed, Ed, you come up here because Ed and I are going to do something together here tonight on national, international television. Ed, are you ready for this? You know what we're, you know we're going to do? We're going to swim to Australia together. That's a long swim. That's a big swim. I don't know how far that is. Let's say it's 10,000 miles. Might be further, might be shorter, I don't know. Now, Ed and I need to practice because we're not very good swimmers. So we head down to the pool and we practice swimming. Come, there you go. That's a terrible stroke. You're gonna, oh. We need to practice a lot on our way 
to Australia. And after a while, we feel pretty good about this trip to Australia. And because everybody watching tonight is so nice, you all join us down in San Diego to wish us well as we swim to Australia. So out we go to sea. Let's go. Let's start swimming. We're on our way out to Australia. We go 1,000, 2,000, 4,000, 5,000 miles. We pass Hawaii, and all of a sudden, Ed gets a funny look on his face. I say, Ed, what's the matter? He says, well, I got a cramp. And down he goes, bloop, gone. Well, there's no point. Yeah, you're gone. You can go now. See, now there's no point in me hanging around there because I'll tread water. I'll never find Ed. So I keep going to Australia. I go 9,000, 9,500, 9,900 miles, 9,999 miles. I am six feet from shore and I get a cramp. Bloop, underneath I go. I'm gone. Let me ask you a question. Did it matter how far short we fell of Australia? doesn't matter a bit. You can fall one millimeter short or 30 miles short or a, or a million miles short. You can fall any distance short and it's still a problem. Still a problem. We all fall short. We're all in trouble. John knew it. The thief knew it too. Not right away though. Bible says he made fun of Jesus. Come on, Jesus. If you are the Son of God, why don't you come down off that cross? We'll worship you. We'll give you a throne. Come on. He's making fun of Jesus. Making fun of Jesus, railing on him, the Bible says. And they were all doing it. The people were making fun of Jesus. The priests were making fun of Jesus. The Pharisees who waited so long for this moment were making fun of Jesus. Come on, if you're really Messiah, you should be able to come down. For that sign says you're the king of the Jews. Come down off that. Shouldn't be a problem for you, Jesus. Come on. Railing on Jesus. One man who only has a few agonizing days left to live on a cross is making fun of God's son. And then all of a sudden, mid-sentence, he looks over at the man on the cross next to him. And the lights go on. Something happens. He starts to think about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He'd heard about him all his life, perhaps. How he went from village to village doing good. How he healed people. How he taught a God of love. How he put his arm around people that nobody would put their arm around. And he thinks about Jesus in the judgment hall last night as they're picking their victims for crucifixion. He thinks about how Jesus just stood there as we spit in his face. As they laid a Roman back into his whip, how Jesus stood there and he didn't say a word. He was quiet, not like a guilty man who's just given up, but like an innocent man who's resigned himself to something awful that's about to happen. And as he hangs on that cross next to Jesus and looks over at God's Son, something happens in his heart, something goes on in his mind, and he can suddenly see it. Jesus of Nazareth isn't deceived. He is. Let me ask you a question tonight wherever you are. Are you starting to see Jesus? Are you starting to see who He is? Are you starting to sense that you can trust what this book says? Maybe tonight you're noticing your world's not as secure as you thought it was. Your marriage is in trouble. Maybe tonight your job is on the line. Maybe tonight you live with a past that haunts you and it keeps you awake in the quiet hours of the night. Maybe you're struggling with your health. What is it that you're up against? As you look at the cross of Christ tonight, what do you see when you look there? A thief in the last moments of his life discovered that his whole life had been a lie, a cover-up, a conspiracy. I don't believe in conspiracies. I don't believe in conspiracy theories, Sean. I just don't. Well, I don't either most of the time. 
I've read some doozies. I kind of made a habit out of studying conspiracy theory, and they're everywhere. You've got a few of them right here in Phoenix. Somebody saw some lights here back in 1997, and I have read every theory under the sun as to who's responsible for that and who's about to take uh, conspiracy theories. You come across them all the time, and with the advent of the Internet, we hear nothing but conspiracy theory all the time, and people are sick of it. I don't believe in conspiracy. Well, most of the time, I don't either. But it doesn't mean that there really is no such thing as a conspiracy. It's hard to deny it because they kept Linda in the dark all her life. True story. Her mother was a young girl named Jeannie. She got married at 17, gave birth to Linda later that same year. And after the baby arrived, her teenage husband decided he'd had enough of married life. He took off into the woods somewhere, never to be seen again. Now, Jeannie was fortunate enough to find a full-time job in Omaha, Nebraska, and an older couple who was willing to take care of the little girl during the week while she was working. Now, she used to try and drop her off every day there and pick her up, but it was so far over to the Whitney's house that she didn't have time. So the arrangement became like this. She'd drop her daughter off on Sunday night and pick her up again on Friday afternoon. And it worked really, really well for a long time. Jeannie made enough money to pay the Whitney's a little bit of something, and, uh, and, and she had a little left over, and, and, and Linda was being well cared for. She was a happy child, and it all went really, really well until one afternoon the phone rang at work. Jeannie answered it. Jeannie, this, this is Mrs. Whitney. You've got to get over here right away because social services has found out about our child care arrangement, and they're coming over. They say they're going to take your daughter away unless you sign some papers validating this. Oh, whatever you do, don't let them take my little girl. Please, I'll be right over. She got over there as fast as she could, an hour and a half across town on the train, on the, the, the rail car. She got over there, and sure enough, there were some papers. She looked it over. The words were big and intimidating, but there was a lawyer there who backed up the whole story. Listen, he said, it's true. If you don't sign this, you could lose your daughter forever. Ah, she said, I don't want to lose my daughter. I'll sign those papers. Here, I'll sign it. Just please don't take my daughter. She went back to work that day. She came back a few days later on Friday afternoon to pick up her daughter, and it was her daughter's second birthday. She had a birthday present under her arm, all wrapped in bright-colored paper, had a ribbon on top. She came and knocked on the door of the Whitney's apartment. No answer. Nothing. She knocked again. Nothing. She kept banging on the door until finally the superintendent of the building heard the ruckus, and he stuck his head out in the hole. He said, can I help you? She said, yeah. Do you know where the Whitney's are? said, they don't live here anymore. They're gone. I don't know if you can imagine the pain of separation. But let me share something with you tonight wherever you happen to be sitting. God knows that kind of pain. He understands it. He understands because somebody once, the Bible says, stole all his children. All of them. And then when his son came, they put him to death. And the Bible says that whatever you're facing tonight, the Lamb of God can identify with you. It says he understands what it's like to live here. The Lamb in Revelation chapter 5 has been slain, and it happened right here on this planet. He knows suffering. He knows pain. He knows what you're up against. He can identify with whatever it is that you're going through right now tonight. Jeannie called the lawyer. He wouldn't talk to her. She called Mr. Whitney's boss. He said he just left town. I don't know where he is. He's gone. The strangest thing, didn't even pay, take his paycheck. She called the adoption people, and they said, listen, adoption issues are just a closed thing. She thought in her heart, oh, my goodness. What if when I signed those papers, I adopted her out and didn't know it? 
That was the end of it for her. She didn't have resources. She couldn't afford a lawyer. She couldn't afford a private investigator. It was at the end of a rope. What am I going to do? Where's my little girl? Now, she didn't give up. She kept hunting every day of her life. She read every phone book from every city she could looking for a Whitney. She, she read the classified ads every day hoping that somebody somewhere would say something if they knew something, anything to have her little girl back. That was a conspiracy. It's real. It actually happens. And the more I think about it, the more I know there's been a big cover-up, a big conspiracy here on this planet. Somebody has stolen you from your heavenly Father and they're trying to keep you in the dark. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says it plain as day. For if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. It's a deliberate conspiracy. It's an effort to keep the document of truth out of your hands. But you see, no, no conspiracy is perfect. They're just fabrications. No matter how much the devil has perfected the art of deceiving the human race over the years... His work is still full of holes, and those holes are just big enough for the light of truth to shine through. You'll always find the truth if you look. And the Bible says that a thief hanging on a cross noticed some light peeking through one of those holes one day, and all the lights went on for him. He woke up, and for the first time in his life, with blood and sweat and dirt in his eyes, he could finally see clearly. He could see that the man he'd been mocking on the cross next to him was the slain Lamb of God. And he looks back, I believe, down to the crowd at the foot of the cross, and he listens to them mocking Jesus. And in my heart, I believe, he suddenly recognizes a voice in the crowd. And if you listen carefully, you ought to be able to recognize that voice in the crowd too, because you've listened to this voice all your life. He speaks to everybody. It's that voice at the foot of the cross speaking through the lips of the crowd that keeps asking the question if, if you are the king of the Jews, come down off that cross. If you are the son of God, then you come down from that place. You should be able to recognize that voice. You've heard it all your life long. You look down with me tonight in your mind's eye at the crowd at the foot of the cross. You'll notice there's one lonely figure lurking there in the shadows. Nobody seems to know him. But he's the one who keeps it going. Every time there is a lull in the insults, every time the sarcasm seems to drag, he gets them going again. Hey, Jesus, is this your big plan? Is this how you plan to establish your kingdom? Is this how you're going to take back this world? Why don't you come down off that cross? It keeps asking the same thing. If you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, you should recognize that voice. I believe in my heart Jesus recognized that voice. I know He did because He'd heard it before when He began His ministry out in the desert. You read about it in Matthew chapter 4. Whose voice was it? A voice in the wilderness said to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you're the Son of God, cast yourself off the temple. You, you know whose voice that is, right? It's a fallen angel. It's Lucifer. Yes, he was there at the cross. I don't like to think of it. The cross seems like a holy place, but you better believe he was there. It might be coming out of the lips of a priest. It might be coming out of the lips of the rulers. It might be coming out of the lips of a Roman or a Pharisee or a thief on a cross, but you know who's stirring them up to say that. He had to have been there. What else could possibly explain the fact that the human race nailed God's son to a cross? 
At that moment, the devil would have loved it if Jesus would have stepped down off that cross and called it quits. And let's be honest, he didn't have to hang there. He could have come down. He could have walked away from the whole thing. He didn't have to do it. But Jesus in his heart knew that if you were ever going to stand in his kingdom, if you were ever going to be ready for him to come again, if you were ever going to be a part of the new Jerusalem, if you were ever going to stand in heaven having hope and not having to weep, he was going to have to pay the price for your sins on that cross. He hung there for you. It wasn't the nails that hung Jesus to that cross. That's not what held him there. He's the Son of God. He could have come down. What held him there was the thought that you could be in the kingdom of heaven. That's what held him there. It held him to the cross. I know. I know it. See, every time the cross is lifted up, the devil does show up. He was there back then. He still comes now. Every time somebody begins to contemplate what Jesus as for them, the devil shows up, his angels stand in the shadows, and they encourage people to doubt. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be strong enough. You'll never be smart enough. And you can always make this decision later. They still encourage people to doubt. They still come. Why? Because they're scared the truth's going to get out. And that when you look at Jesus, you're going to see who he is. He's the slain lamb of God. And he's the only hope you've got. See, there's some really good news in the Bible. It says all have sinned. And it says the wages of sin is death, but there's good news attached to that. Take a look at what the text actually says in the pages of the Bible. It says in Romans 6 and verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love that. That verse changes everything. Yes, the wages of sin is death. That's all I deserve. If I were standing in the throne room of God alongside John right now, I'd have to weep too. I know what my sin has done. I know that I'm responsible for my life. I know it. I know it. I know it. But the Bible says, but that's an important word. When I, when I first got married, um, and I've only been married the once, but if when I first got married, <laughs> I decided I was going to really impress my wife. And she went out, she went out for the day. I just said, I'm going to show her that I can keep house. And I, I made the bed for her. Boy, did I do a good job. And when she came home, I left the bedroom door open so she could see that I had made the bed. I wanted her to be thoroughly impressed. And she walked in, she looked into the bedroom, she looked at the bed, and she looked at me, and she said, Sean, you did a really nice job, but... See, but changes everything. What does that mean? It means you're supposed to be able to bounce a quarter off those sheets. That's what it means. It means you're supposed to tuck tab A into slot B and do a nice job, right? And then I discovered a really important principle, by the way. Do something the first time lousy when you get married. You'll never be asked to do it again as long as you live. <laughs> I don't do laundry or dishes. It's amazing. Of course, that all just went up on live satellite TV all over. I'm exposed. But changes it all, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John stands in the throne room of heaven and he weeps. He knows there's an issue. He knows there's a problem. He knows he's not worthy and an angel cries out, but weep not. The lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. And he turned and he sees a lamb as if it has been slain. Look at what the Bible says. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All of it. All of it. Oh, but God doesn't know what I've done. Yes, he does. 
Yes, he does. He doesn't realize I'm a thief. It doesn't say all unrighteousness except for robbery. He doesn't realize I've actually killed somebody. It doesn't say he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness except murder. Doesn't understand I haven't been faithful in my marriage. It doesn't say he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness except for adultery. There are no ifs, ands, or buts attached to this. Jesus says if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all of it. That tells you something. What price did Jesus pay on the cross of Calvary? It was huge. It was enough to cover for the sins of every human being who's ever lived. Amazing. The punishment he took on himself. A few moments ago, that thief was down on the ground. He was wrestling with Roman soldiers. But then a few moments later, he's wrestling with something a whole lot worse than a crucifixion and a Roman soldier. He's wrestling with conviction. Just like a lot of people hearing me tonight are wrestling with conviction. A conviction that the man who's hanging on that center cross really is God's son. A conviction that this book really is telling the truth. And on the cross that afternoon, it says in the book of Luke, that thief suddenly cries out as he clues into what's going on, Stop it! Don't you see what we're doing? We deserve to hang on these crosses, but this man here has done nothing wrong. And he was right. Jesus, the innocent Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, has never done anything wrong. And yet there he is, hanging on that cross for you. Hanging there in your place. Because he wants you in his kingdom. And he cries out, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a simple prayer. You know, more happens in those nine words than most people begin to realize as they think about it. Way back in the desert when Jesus began his ministry and the devil was tempting him, Matthew chapter 4, the devil actually offered to give Jesus a kingdom. He said, look at this world. You look at it all. I'll give it all to you. You can have this kingdom if you'll just bow down to me. And Jesus wouldn't take it. He won't take any shortcut to the kingdom. He knew the only way to guarantee your place in the kingdom of God was to go to that cross, and he went there for you. He wouldn't cave in. And now as he's hanging on the cross, the devil is doing his worst to discourage Jesus. Come on, Jesus, come down off that cross. I wonder at what point the devil realized he'd just blown it at the cross. That cross was going to be his undoing. He would have loved to have seen Jesus come down. Come down off that cross. You should have listened to me out in the desert. I would have given you a kingdom. Now you've got nothing left at all. The people you thought would choose you out of their own free will just nailed you to a cross. Then it's the devil's turn to recognize a voice. It shakes him to the core. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A thief, a transgressor, and an evildoer just chose Jesus out of his own free will. Just stepped into the kingdom of Christ. The first man to plead the blood of Jesus Christ was a thief. Some people say to me, I'm just not good enough for church. I'm not good enough for heaven. Then you're finally getting the point. Nobody is. Anybody who says they are haven't read the scriptures. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive our... The only one who was worthy in heaven's courtroom was Jesus. And the only one who's worthy to this day is Jesus. He's worthy. 
He covers your sins. Can I invite you to stand and look at the foot of the cross with me for a moment in your mind's eye tonight. Look up and see the battered, bleeding body of Jesus hanging on that cross for you. Why don't we count the thorns that we put in his head? Count the crimson drops of blood as they spill out of his hands and his feet. How can you look at the cross of Christ and not begin to see clearly? How can you look at the cross of Christ and not hate sin? I hate sin. Because I know it's my pride that put him on that cross. I know it's my unbelief that became a nail in his hands. I know it's my sins that put those nails in his feet. I hate sin because it put Jesus on that cross. What do you see? first man to ever plead the blood of Jesus was a thief, a transgressor, an evildoer, the worst thing that they could find that day. And that cross is still for sinful men and women who want to see clearly, who want to know Jesus, who want Him to take their place. Don't you see John weeping in the courts of heaven? He knows the problem is serious and that unless somebody is found worthy, all is lost. You can't make yourself good enough. You can't make up for what we've done. But then John sees it. Jesus is good enough. And that's what counts. That's what matters. Linda ran an ad in the paper in Omaha, Nebraska on October of 1992. The ad read, My name is Linda, born to a genie and worn in Omaha on July the 8th, 1950, and given up for adoption. My adoptive parents are deceased. I do not wish to cause any problems, but am seeking available information or possible reunion. Who am I? Is anybody ever going to see this ad? Is anybody ever going to hear my prayer? Is anything ever going to come of this? Will I ever know? On November the 2nd, just a few weeks later, the phone rang. Linda, it was the social services agent. What is it? Linda, I think you're going to have a very Merry Christmas. Why? Well, this lady saw your ad in the paper and she's quite convinced she's your mom. And as a matter of fact, she knows stuff about you nobody could possibly know unless it really was your mother. Should I give her your phone number? Boy, I don't know, said Linda. I'm suddenly a little nervous. Well, should I or shouldn't I? Yeah, give her my number. She hung up the phone. She sat in the kitchen. She sat and waited there and waited there and waited there. And later that afternoon, the phone started to ring. She suddenly got this knot in her stomach. The butterfly started to move, and she didn't think she could answer the phone. That's when Mike, her husband, came into the kitchen. He held her hand, gave it a squeeze, said, You can do this, honey. Pick up the phone. See who it is. She picked up the phone. Hello? Hi. Uh, is this Linda? Yeah, it is. Is this my mom? Two strangers burst into tears. After Linda regained her composure, she said, Mom, I can't believe this. I can't believe that you saw my ad that one day I ran it. I can't believe it. Oh, honey, I've been reading the paper every day for 40 years waiting to hear from you. Every day. Folks, you've been stolen 
at birth. The Bible says the God of this world is trying to pull the wool over your eyes. And today as you send a prayer into the courtroom of heaven, you're going to discover something amazing. Jesus has been sifting through the prayers coming for planet earth every day of your life. Waiting to hear from you. This is your moment. This is the moment that Jesus has brought you to. He knows your name. He knows who you are. And he is the slain lamb that died in your place so that you could inherit the kingdom that's coming. John stands in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, and he weeps. But as he sees the slain lamb, he has hope. He knows that is his Savior. He knows that is how he will step into the kingdom of God. He knows that that is a God who knows his name, who has seen everything that has happened all his life. And he knows because of Jesus, it's going to be okay. Tonight, wherever you're sitting, either here in Phoenix or watching by television around the world, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ. This is an important night. I'm going to ask that everybody sit where they are. And I'm going to do something very simple. You don't have to do this if you don't want to. But I'm going to ask the ushers to come and hand a card to everybody. And I would like you to look at it with me. And I want to go through this card with you wherever you are. And you could be watching by satellite out there across North America. The ushers are going to bring you a card too. You could be watching on the internet or by satellite television somewhere else. You log on to the internet, www.unlockthesigns.com. As you get to that website, you're going to see a little button there that says, My Decision. You click on that, and you can see this card too, and I'd like to hear from you, and here's why. As we go through this card, I simply want to pray for you. My team and I believe in the power of prayer. You might be wrestling with something in your life. I'd like to pray for you. Again, there's no pressure. You don't have to do this if you don't want to, but I sure would like to pray for you. Take a look at that card when it comes. It has four simple choices, and this is fond to the call of Jesus. If you've heard his voice, then you let him know. And I'd like to pray for you by name, so let me know who you are. The first line says, I believe that salvation comes only by the grace through faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means you know that you don't have what it takes to step into the kingdom of God, but you understand by faith that Jesus does. Maybe you're taking a very first step in faith tonight. You don't really know who Jesus is, but you'd like to. You can still check that box. There is something on this card for everybody listening to my voice around the world tonight. Next one says, I once knew Jesus, but I've drifted away. Tonight I recommit my life to Christ. Maybe you know who Jesus is. As you look over your life, you realize you've got some struggles and you need to leave them with Jesus. Thirdly, I repent of my sins. I accept Jesus as my personal Savior, believing that my sins are forgiven and His gift of eternal life is mine. It's a gift from Jesus Christ to you. He bought your salvation, your place in the kingdom on the cross of Calvary. You can check that box. No matter who you are, you can check that box, whatever your walk of life. Now, the fourth option is this. Because of my desire to follow Jesus, I would like to be baptized soon. If you've never been baptized and you'd like to talk to somebody about it or just have somebody pray for you, it's just that simple. Just check that box. And again, there's no pressure. God doesn't force anybody into the kingdom of God, but I sure would like to pray for you by name. I have a big prayer ministry team that prays for people around the world. We've seen miracles take place. If you have a specific prayer request, you can just pencil it in there. Nobody will see it but me and my team. I just want to pray for you. 
Tonight around the world, there are people who are starting to see Jesus for the very first time, some of them. You're not sure if you can take this kind of a step in faith to say, Jesus, I need you. You take what step you can tonight. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be perfect. That's certainly not the case. Only Jesus is perfect. And tonight he's calling you. This is your moment. He brought you here for this reason tonight. You can have a relationship with the living God. He's your father. You're his child, and he wants you to know that. Tonight, just that act of writing it down and having us pray over it is an important step that you've taken. In the Bible, Jesus always called everybody to come and follow him. And they took that step in front of others. Tonight, all I'm asking, you just put that card in the bucket. I'd like to pray for you tonight. And wherever you are out there watching, please, if you're watching on the Internet, you're watching in your home, go to that Internet site, www.unlockthesigns.com. I want everybody to see Jesus. There's not one person he would ever turn away. There's room at the foot of the cross for all of humanity. He hung there for your sins. Somebody will say again, I, I don't know. Uh, he doesn't know what I've done. Yes, he does. He knows what you've done. That's why he hung on the cross. It's so that you could find forgiveness and hope in him. And tonight I'm going to pray for us as a group, both here in Phoenix, Arizona, and around the world. I'm going to ask now that we all bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we see that the driving theme of the Bible is Jesus Christ. He is the man of revelation. And until we see Jesus, the slain lamb of God, the rest of the Bible, the rest of prophecy would never make sense to us. And tonight there are people who are stepping out in faith for the first time, some of us, saying, Jesus, I need you. I know my life is a mess. I face a lot of hardship in my life. Lord, I need your help. They're stepping out in faith, and I know angels are rejoicing as they do that. Bless that person tonight. Gracious Father, tonight there are others who maybe grew up in a family that went to church. They've known about Jesus. Maybe they even went to church themselves for a while and have found that they've drifted a long ways away. They're wondering if you would ever take them home. Father, tonight is that night. I ask that you'd bless that person as they give their hearts anew to Jesus Christ. Lord, each one of us, as we look in our hearts, know we need him. And so tonight I would like to dedicate my life anew to Jesus and ask that he forgive my sins so that I too could have a place in the kingdom when Jesus comes. Lord, there's somebody out there who would like to follow Jesus in baptism and they'd like prayer for that. I know there are others who have penciled something on that card because they're facing a real struggle and would like prayer. Lord, you saw what that was. You care about that person. Tonight, most of all, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ and his love for us. And we give you all the praise and glory in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.